name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I love that song. Uh, if you are not familiar with the song that we just sang, it is a song by Shane and Shane, Shane Bernard and Shane, I don't know the other Shane's last name, but the, the group is called Shane and Shane. Um, it is a fantastic song. It's something that God has uh, placed on my heart probably for the past few weeks. I've been really listening to this kind of on loop, you know, even if I'm going for a run or doing a workout, I've just been listening and soaking in this song. It's actually called I'm Home, and it's, it's taken from Psalm 84. And so as you listen to the lyrics, it really is going to, uh, I, I think, speak to a lot of what we're going to see in this passage this morning. So we are continuing in our summer series through the book of Colossians, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23 this morning. And so I want to start by just kicking it off by reading through uh, 16, so Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. We'll read through it together, and then we'll drop back and walk through it together, okay? So... Let's dive right in here. Colossians 2, starting with verse 16 and reading through verse 23. So here we go. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right. So, topic on the table for this morning is legalism. So there's a lot of different uh, ways that people use this term legalism. So this morning we're going to look at how it's used here in this passage and how it can create uh, what's called a religious spirit. And so often when you think of a, leg of a legalistic spirit or legalistic people, you might think of kind of old stuffy churches, right, where everybody's like wearing robes and, and everybody's just kind of angry and side-eyeing everybody and like, you better behave, you know, when, they, when you leave, you know, the, the, the thing they say is, be good, because highly behavior-oriented, and, and, and you kind of think, well, this is, this is what legalistic environments may be like. Maybe that's just me, because I grew up in the Bible Belt, um, but this is, I think, uh, not just, and it's not, a, I don't think, I know, <laughs> that this is not just an issue for old, stuffy, traditional churches this is an issue also in contemporary or younger churches also. In fact, um, it, in my experience, that legalistic or religious spirit often thrives in the cool and exciting church as well, just as much as in the old stuffy boring church. So this term legalism or religious spirit gets thrown around a lot, right? 
Like we hear this a lot, and often it's like a jab that people throw at other people because they're offended because they feel like they've been called out for their sin. And so in a way to get back at people, they're just like, you're a legalist. You know? That's often how it's used. Sometimes people are just trying to justify their own sin by labeling and shaming those who love God and are just trying to pursue holiness. That's sometimes how it's used. Like they see that pursuit and they're like, man, a bunch of legalists always reading their Bibles and going to church and stuff. But is that legalist? Is that legalism? Like they don't even cuss, man. They're clearly judging me. Like I've heard some even fast and pray regularly. Such a religious spirit. But is that what legalism is? Is that what a religious spirit actually is? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Or maybe you're in church and everybody's raising their hands and singing really loud and, and you feel pressured to join in the crowd. And, and, and maybe you're like, I don't really understand why everybody's so excited. It seems like they're at a football game or something, you know? So instead of faking it, because you don't know why everybody's all amped up, so instead of faking it, maybe you sort of just stand there quietly. Maybe you fold your arms even in reaction and rejection, right? Maybe, maybe you know, you're like, I'm not doing this. And then one of the more extravagant participants, maybe they, they look over at you and the person that you've been judging then looks over at you and whispers to his friend, he's like, there's such a religious spirit on that guy. And the other one's like, yeah, he really needs to let go. So is, is that legalism? Is that what it means? Again, maybe, but maybe not. In fact, in that circumstance, who's judging who? It may well be that they're both judging each other at least in some sense. So it could be that they're all legalistic. Or it could mean that they just love Jesus and they love you and they want you to love Jesus too. The reason that maybe you're labeling them as legalistic may have more to do with the motives of your heart than theirs. Then again, maybe I'm being a little too legalistic about legalism. <laughs> or maybe you are. I don't know. It's confusing. I think a lot of people are confused about this subject, which is why we need to address it, because I don't think you're alone. It gets confusing. The thing is, is that most of the time, these things are not so cut and dry. Most of the time, it's a mix of both. See, you can have a theology that says legalism is bad and still operate in a legalistic or religious spirit. So I want to quickly give you a sort of working definition of what legalism is, and then we're going to walk through this passage together and let God's Word show us how to identify it, prevent it, avoid it, and be free from it. Okay? So legalism defines, is simply defined as the belief that our acceptance by God or qualification depends on how well we keep certain regulations or laws. So legalism is simply the belief that our acceptance by God or qualification depends on how well we keep certain regulations or laws. Right? Work hard, behave, keep the law, do all the right things, and God accepts you. You're qualified, but if you fail to do these things, then God rejects you in condemnation. Now, again, most people who struggle with legalism don't outright claim it. <laughs> like, I've never heard anyone say, I'm a legalist. You know, I've never heard anybody say, I, I'm a member of a legalistic church. 
especially since the scriptures are blatantly clear that we are not justified by works, but by faith in Christ. Romans 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2, verse 16, and basically the entire book of Galatians. Galatians 2, verse 16, though, says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Over and over again, this is just... Three passages, but it's, especially the New Testament, is just saturated with this stuff. So the fundamental reason for the cross is that we don't have what it takes. This is why the only way to receive Christ as Savior and King is if you first humbly accept the fact that you cannot save yourself and that you are not King. So to the humble heart that accepts this, The gospel is really good news. But to the legalist who's hell-bent on achieving their own salvation and their own glory, this is fundamentally offensive and discouraging. So the good news of the gospel is that you don't have what it takes, but Jesus does. You don't have what it takes, man, but Jesus does. Oh. Not, you don't have what it takes, man, but Jesus does. Eh. You see that? Big difference. Big difference. The gospel is that God became a man and he lived the life that you could not live. Most people can't get past that. Most people live in the condemnation of a half-truth that they don't have what it takes and spend the rest of their lives trying to prove that they do. And then resenting God that they can't. And missing the full gospel, which is that though you don't have what it takes, he does. And he lived the life you couldn't live, and he died the death you deserve to die. But he conquered death in the grave on your behalf. And he paved the way through the resurrection to eternal life, eternal relationship with God Almighty. And it's an eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when we die, not just one day after we've proven that we have what it takes and that we are good enough for heaven, but it starts now through his indwelling spirit. And the reason his spirit can indwell you is because you've been justified by what he did at the cross. And then that changes you from the inside out. And it even changes what your heart desires. But the legalist heart The legalistic heart can't get past the fact that they don't have what it takes. So they begin to even create other methods or standards to prove that they do. Whether they realize it or not, it's all an attempt to steal glory from God and then impose that self-made standard on other people. And it's all an attempt to make themselves feel good or look good in comparison. So the gospel then isn't accepted as good news. It's just an offensive reminder of their inability. 
And rather than being humbled and filled with joy and gratefulness and worship for what God's done for them, the legalist only receives half of that truth, half of that message, and they use it as fuel to motivate themselves to try harder and be better to achieve glory and acceptance, which inevitably cultivates a constant waffling between pride and shame, which leads to resentment and an overly critical and judgmental heart, not only of themselves, but everyone around them. Now, before we go any further... I'm going to take a little time out here. And before we go any further, um, many of you may have certain people in mind that you may be, even in this moment, labeling as legalistic. Or at least someone who has a tendency to operate out of a religious spirit. I want to hit the pause button right there and stop you right there. Because I want you to take all of this in this morning. I want you to table that, take all this in, and fix your eyes upon what God is saying to you personally. Again, theologically, everybody rejects legalism outright. But the human heart is like a works righteousness addict. So this message, if you're thinking, man, this message is for somebody else, you're not listening. Okay? So I want you to hear this. You can have a theology that rejects legalism and still tend to operate in an attitude or a spirit that embraces it. This is essentially what having a religious spirit means or a tendency towards it, okay? So we want to bring freedom to this. It's amazing how the human heart can even subconsciously create methods of achieving self-righteousness. Like religious spirits will take even that which is not required or forbidden in Scripture, which there are things in Scripture that are forbidden, right? They're called commandments. Like there's a lot of this stuff in there, and it's good, and we're going to talk about how that is for our good and for human flourishing. It's not to be rejected, it's not, but you take those things and turn it into prerequisites for acceptance by God. Going beyond those things. Taking things that are not re, uh, required or forbidden and turning those things into prerequisites. And then, and then we make uh, those things, look at those who, who don't live up to these self-imposed expectations and we look at them side-eyed, critically and suspiciously and, and, and you know because of their failure to, or even refusal to comply. This is the essence of legalism. It's a divisive false gospel that can flow within the undercurrents of church culture, even if it's against that church's doctrine. It will steal your joy, it will quench the spirit, because it's all designed by your enemy to focus your heart upon yourself and your sin rather than your savior. And it's what Paul is addressing here in Colossians. So remember, the point of this entire message is encouragement and freedom. I want you to hear this. You got to get, because if this is not encouraging and freeing to you, you're probably still operating out of a legalistic mindset, okay? Because this is grace. It's not designed, this is not designed to make you feel bad about yourself or good about yourself. Honestly, this is not about your self-esteem. It's not about having high self-esteem or low self-esteem. This is about God's esteem. It's not about you, right? The point here is to focus our hearts upon Jesus and encourage you with what he says about you because that's all that matters. So I want you to see his glory. I want you to see his grace. I want you to worship him in spirit and in truth because that's what cultivates joy and that's the only thing that can truly set the captive heart free from legalism in the first place. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else out of this, here's what I want you to get. Our greatest weapon against legalism is joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Our greatest weapon against legalism is joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Not your idea of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit that's described in the Scriptures. It's enjoying God. Not your idea of God. Not a plastic Jesus. But the real deal, authentic reality presented to us in Scripture that points us to his very present spirit. So quick roadmap for the rest of our time. We're going to drop back here and we're going to walk through this passage together. We're going to look at three lies that legalism tells the Christian. The first lie that legalism tells the Christian. You've been judged and condemned. The second lie. You're disqualified. The third lie. You're enslaved. Now I want to make something really clear that these are only lies to those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and King. If you're outside of Christ, the reality is that these things aren't lies. They're truths. Okay? This is why the gospel of grace is such good news. It brings us true freedom and joy. Okay? So let's, let, let's look at the first lie here that would try to steal that freedom and joy from us in him. And that first one is, the first lie that legalism tells us is that you've been judged and condemned. So look back with me at verse uh, 16 and 17. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. It says this, Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first thing that we ask uh, when a passage starts with therefore is, what's the therefore therefore, right? So this is crucial to understand what comes next. So what is the therefore Therefore, <laughs> so this entire passage launches out of the premise of what Jesus has done for us through the cross and the resurrection. This is the entire premise of the entire series in Colossians. It's the whole letter is based on this. Earlier in this chapter, we actually read the key verse of our, for our entire series, which was Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7, which says this. Therefore, so therefore, because that therefore is there for a, a reason also. But therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is why our series is called Firmly Established. We're firmly established in Christ and what he's done for us and who he's declared us to be because of what he's done for us. And he's changed our hearts, and so we root deeper into him. And then verse 8 continues in the same line of thought, and it says this in verse 8. He said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So for the last few weeks, We've been looking at how these deceptive human traditions and demonic powers try to twist the truths of the gospel and captivate people. But the answer is always the same. It's Jesus. We dig into Christ's word and his presence and we do it with thankful and joyful hearts and it brings us freedom from that captivity. Even as the unstable world around you shifts and moves and falls into chaos, his word is true and his grace is sufficient. Amen? Therefore, say therefore, Therefore. let no one pass judgment on you 
for your wicked deeds and unrepentant sin. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. That's not what it says. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. This is specifically talking about traditional Jewish observances. Apparently, there were false teachers in Colossae telling people that uh, in order to advance in spiritual maturity, they had to observe these specifically Jewish Old Testament traditions. And if they didn't participate in what they had decided was necessary for spiritual growth, then they would then judge them as illegitimate followers of God or followers even of Jesus. But here Paul says that they've completely missed the point. He says those observances were all designed to be a shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of those old covenant observances were designed by God and even were good in order to prepare God's people for the access to God that they now have in Jesus Christ. So quick illustration. I want to uh, kind of paint a picture here for you um, of what I think he's talking about here. I, I got to see a friend that I grew up with not long ago, and I haven't seen him in over 20 years. And so over the 4th of July, we got to spend some time together. We were in the same uh, house. Our families were together. And I haven't seen him, like I said, in over 20 years. And so um, we're now both married. We both have three kids about the same age. And so the first thing that he did when we saw each other is he introduced me to his entire family. You know, And he was so clearly proud of his family, and he loved his family so much. And it was great to meet him. But then what if I was like, man, what a beautiful family. And instead of introducing him to my family, I took out like a, 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 a sonar or like an ultrasound image from when my kids were in the womb. What if I was just taking them and, you know, those, you remember those blurry things? Now you can actually see the pictures of, of the kids. But like, what if I took out a picture, an ultrasound, and I'm like, hey, look, you can even see a toe. It's a toe. Isn't that amazing? Isn't, aren't they great? He'd be like, what are you talking about? They're right beside you. Like, why are you pointing me to this blurry ultrasound image when your children are right here? That wouldn't make sense. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that all of those observances were just blurry images that were designed to prepare us or God's people for the Savior and King that we now have direct access to through His Spirit. So it's not wrong to pull out those ultrasound images and be like, wow, look at that. But when you do, it's like, praise God, I was so excited about meeting my children, now they're here and enjoying them. So it makes no sense to ignore the access that we have now as if that blurry image is all you've got. That's what these false teachers were trying to get the Colossians to do by insisting on these Old Testament observances. So they were saying that if you want to really be legitimate, then you've got to do all these things just right. But Paul makes it clear that none of that matters anymore because the only thing that really matters is knowing Jesus. And it's not that this stuff isn't good. Like I said, feel free. Do whatever you're free to do it. But it's to point you to the access you have now. In Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 1, it says this For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Romans 7, verse 4 through 6, says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That matters. Notice that there's, there is a purpose in this. In order that we bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, say but now, we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now notice, it doesn't say so that we do nothing and we're just thankful that God did what he did and it doesn't matter anything that you do now, just, you know, live however you want. It's not what it says. It says, now we serve, say serve, in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. So the point here isn't that God's commands don't matter anymore. Hear that. That's not the point. The point is that because we've been set free, we now serve God in a new way of the Spirit. He changes us from the inside out. There's no begrudging junk that we're trying to earn. You're already, you already got it in Christ. Life is now a worshipful response. And it's beautiful and it's acceptable. And now it's because we do it from a changed heart and love. That's different. That's real different. So we've used pride, shame, spectrum previously as a helpful diagram a, a lot in the series. And I told you we were going to use it uh, more, even more. And so we're going to continue. So we got, we're going to break it out again today um, because I think it's helpful for us to understand how legalism works. Okay. So if you don't know what the pride, shame, spectrum is, welcome. You're about to find out. So anybody see this? All right. You'll be all right. So if we, let's say we've got P right here. This is for pride, okay? Pride, and then down here is an S. It stands for shame, okay? So now this is where people operate. The majority of people, if something good happens to you in life, then you're like, man, ha, something good happened to me. God must love me. Pride. God must love me because good things happen to me. But what if something bad happens to you? Oh, God must hate me. Shame. Ooh, but, but what if I do something good, especially something good that God likes? Oftentimes, that can be pride. What if I had a quiet time today? Pride. Right? What if I missed church? Shame. What if I kicked the dog? Shame. What if I got in a fight with my wife? Shame. What if I cussed her out? <laughs> pride. Right? You see this? That's how the world operates. Right? This is the way, this is the pride shame spectrum. We operate and we waffle on this, right? You do enough good, God will say you deserve heaven. Do enough bad, God will send you to hell. According to the spectrum, you are either accepted or rejected according to your ability to measure up. Pride or shame, acceptance or condemnation, qualified or disqualified. Legalism essentially just uses this spectrum and hopes God grades on a curve. Like, like at least I'm better than those people at doing these things. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says 
I made a way, Jesus made a way to get off of this entirely. And he says, hide yourself in what I've done for you at the cross. You in me and me in you. This is, this is it, when a good thing happens to you, praise God. Thank you, Lord. When, a bad things happen, when bad things happen to you, I'm still a son of the most high king. If you do good, praise God. He's pleased with it. That's what we want. We want to do good things. But not in order to justify ourselves. We do it because we've been justified. Right? And then we humbly say, thank you for inviting me into this worship session of your glory. But then if you sin, you can hide yourself in his grace. And you're still a child of the Most High King. Because you're not just holding on to him. He's holding on to you. This is repentance. This is the gospel. This is the way legalism works. And this is the way the world operates. Okay? This is the pride-shame spectrum. And it's all just self-justification. It's all just a self-righteous game of egos. Maybe the legalistic heart creates a bunch of extra good or extra things that God never even said, like just to give them even more fear of the shame of failure to motivate them towards the pride of potential achievement. But here's the thing. Before you just start bashing church people for this and for treating each other like this, you need to realize that this is how the entire world operates outside of Christ, whether they know it or not, okay? Like the gospel is the only way off of this self-righteous pride-shame spectrum. It's through trusting in Christ to be what you never could be. Like this is why when someone does something that makes us feel bad about themselves, if we see someone pursuing holiness, we want to say, legalist! Why? Because it puts us up pride. We see somebody pursuing God, it's like shame. But we call him a legalist, religious spirit, zinger, you know, pride. But they might just be loving Jesus. <laughs> Nothing to do. They're just like, I love God. I want you to love the God that I know. They're trying to invite you over here. This is the point. So the spectrum may look different in some ways for everyone, but ultimately it's essentially the same. It may have to do with your success or failures in your career. It may have to do with how much money you make or you don't make. It may ha have to do with how well you did in that competition or, or how bad you did in that competition. Even how well the sports team that you identified with this, did, this year did, right? Like how well the Nationals did or how well the Steelers did or whatever it is. Like it, it's so weird how the human heart is so starved for acceptance and identity that we latch on to things like sports teams for our identity. Now hear me, I love sports. Seriously, this is why I know this is a thing, right? I think that, that can bring God a whole lot of glory, but again, it's amazing what we look to for our justification and acceptance. Like if, the, if you, the fact that your favorite sports team lost a game ruins your day, you need to find some more substantial identity. Amen? Unless you had money on that game. and In that case, that's a whole other sermon, right? <laughs> so, so the point, though, is that this isn't just about what happens in church. This isn't just a religious issue. This is a human heart issue because we all worship something or someone. All of us, even the atheists. The human heart is designed to worship something, okay? 
Church is by God's good design, the place where we walk through these things together and offer grace to one another as King Jesus lovingly draws us closer to himself and his spirit and one another. So if you find yourself struggling with these tendencies, then you need to know that you're not alone. In fact, if you're hearing this and you're not a little bit convicted or a little bit challenged, you're not listening (laughs) because this is a struggle for us all. That's why we have to intentionally hide ourselves in Jesus. That's why he's writing this to the Colossians. This is why we need to know that his grace is sufficient for you and us. This is the point. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 through 6, it says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You see it? He's called you and commissioned you. He's made you sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. This is the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, that doesn't mean that God's word or letter is bad. What it means is that the letter is designed to point you to the Spirit. And if you're just reading it to give you more reasons to try and earn your access, then you're going to find yourself in a joyless and dark place because it's all about Jesus. God's word isn't just to puff you up with knowledge. It's to give you the information you need to understand who Jesus is. It's pointing us to him. It's not pointing us to itself. It's pointing us to the very present spirit of God. So if you're reading his word for the information alone, it's deadly. But if you're letting it point you to his very present spirit, then it's life-giving. And it's a wonderful gift. It's his word. Jesus is literally the word of God in the flesh. Listen to what Jesus says about it in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 19. This is what he says. Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's talking about the Bible. Don't think that I've come to abolish or get rid of the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Say fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So hear me. I am not up here relaxing God's commandments and laws. That is not what we're after here. We're after the fact that Jesus fulfilled them on our behalf. And I want you to see that God's law is good. It's beautiful. It's helpful. It's given to us for human flourishing. You need to get this. Don't get rid of it. Jesus literally says, the man who is God in the flesh, that it's good. So we are then to be thankful that he has fulfilled what we never could. The legalist has a problem with that. Because they want to be the ones that can fulfill it. It's a Messiah complex. You see it? That doesn't mean we don't still love his word. In fact, it means we can love his word even more because we're not condemned by it. 
Because where we fall short, he measured up. And we're not labeled by our failure. So instead of wallowing in guilt, it cultivates joy and grateful hearts because of what he's done for us, even when his spirit convicts us to stand up out of the condemnation that the law would throw at us. This is a good thing. Because best of all, we're given the grace to stand in his presence and leave all that sin behind. So the best way to stay off of that torment of this spectrum is to be firmly established in the joy of his presence and his spirit in the gospel of truth. So how do we do that? Right? Don't just get rid of his law. I know I'm hammering this point home, but I'm going to keep hammering. Romans 6, verse 1 through 4, it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Right? There's another translation that says, Absolutely not. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, hidden, immersed, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because this is, you get off of this mess and you hide yourself in what Christ has done for you and this is the only true way to resurrection and life. That's an R. You see this? You don't get here from here. You die to yourself. You see that? And you hide yourself in what he's done. When you stand before the holy of holies, you better not give him a resume. When I stand before him, I'm not going to give him a resume. I planted a church. Look at that. No. I'm going to say thank you. I'm going to point to Jesus and say thank you for what you did. Everything else in my life is an offering and an aroma that is acceptable and pleasing to him. And that's what motivates and drives me. And I pray that it drives you too. Amen? Amen. This, is when we, this is how we walk in the newness of life. We operate from a changed heart and a renewed mind. The new way, say the new way. The new way of serving in the Spirit, as Romans 7 put it. It's the way of worship. It's sonship. It's love from a willing heart, not slavery and obligation and duty, but freedom, even when it's difficult. Why? Because we love Him. It's important to know that God's Word has, in fact, very clearly been given to us and His commandments and are good commandments, and they are for our good. He's called us to love Him and to, not just to throw His commandments out, but keep them. His commandment, for example, to not com commit adultery is designed for your good. It's designed to protect you from the destruction that would inevitably follow in your life. And yet, His grace is still sufficient. I heard a pastor describe God's commandments once um, over his life like a wall that surrounds a city, keeping that which desires to harm us out and keeping his people in. Sin is a liar. It's a thief. It's a killer. Stay within the bounds of your design. Stay within the garden of human flourishing. Outside those walls is darkness and death. The issue comes when the legalistic heart design, desires to go beyond what God's word has set and create smaller walls, 
Smaller things that cause you to distrust God and listen to the voice of the enemy who's constantly whispering, did God really say that? Or is that just a human tradition? Right, Eve? Did God really say that? Or is that just something Adam told you? Right? See, that's what the religious spirit ultimately does. It causes others to distrust God, or it gives, it doesn't cause necessarily, but it tempts others to distrust God's good intentions by placing restrictions and regulations on them that aren't from God, and then judging or condemning them for crossing a line that God never drew. This is legalism. It's a lie. But Romans 8.1 reminds us of the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you're in Christ Jesus, then you're not just walking around the perimeters of the wall trying to figure out what you can get away with. Right? If you're in Christ Jesus, you've tasted that he's good and you want to be near to his dwelling. You're asking what glorifies him most, not what sins you can get away with. So that's the first lie that legalism tells us to try to lure us back onto that works righteousness, self-centered pride shame spectrum, okay? That's the first lie, that you're judged and condemned. And the second lie is like it, that you're disqualified. Now, now judgment has a sort of punitive connotation, like punishment, right? To be judged in this sense was to be condemned for falling short, but disqualification speaks more to acceptance or I should say lack of acceptance, right? Which is essentially rejection. So you may not necessarily be condemned to prison, but you're not invited to the party either. Right? You've been left out, disqualified. You're an outsider. You're labeled less than. You're lower tier. You're lower class, right? Seats taken, Forrest. Right? This, this table's for the cool kids. Risen church, that's a lie that legalism tells Christians all the time. This is a church for older people. No, well, this is a church for younger people. You should go to the other church. You don't fit in here. This church is for really smart people. This church isn't for you. You're not qualified for this one. Like, this church is, is full of pretty people. You don't fit in. Like, this church is for witty people or military people, or those who grew up in a certain tradition. You didn't grow up, well, you don't fit in. Like, this is a church for people that wear polos, or plaid shirts, or flip-flops, or, oh, you wear Jordans? I'm not sure you fit in. This church might not be for you. Oh, you like Crocs? I think there's a church down the street that uh, is probably better for you if you wear Crocs. I think I saw somebody wearing socks and flip-flops together. That one probably, you can go there. Right? Skin color, accent, stage of life, married, unmarried, dress style, music preference. None of that has anything to do with what qualifies you to be accepted and approved by Jesus. And therefore, none of that has anything to do with your approval and acceptance as one of his beloved and covenant people at Risen Church. Amen? deep covenantal community is contingent upon Christ's acceptance and approval of you and Christ's alone. But the enemy will surely bring up a ton of barriers and restrictions to keep you out of that through legalism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you 
insisting on asceticism and, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So these were some of the things that the false teachers were using to gauge approval or disapproval in their church. These were essentially the tactics the spiritual elites were using to elevate themselves over the rest of the church and then create a sort of like status system or spiritual approval and acceptance hierarchy. Asceticism is basically, uh, what it means basically is self-abasement, okay? It's when people intentionally punish themselves or, or abase themselves or lower themselves through some manner of self-denial in order to be seen as impressively holy, like the guy who's always fasting and making sure everybody knows that they're fasting because it's, it, it makes them seem like they are better and they've abased themselves. Now, that is not a bad thing in a culture that is overly self-indulgent. Self-denial is actually a really good thing, right? Again, it's missing the entire point of fasting if it's about being impressive, though. Because it's a helpful tool for training and holiness for our good in a world that's obsessed with self-indulgence. But when it's twisted into something that's impressive rather than an exercise of drawing near to the Lord, it completely misses the point, right? Matthew 6, Jesus talks about this. He says in Matthew 6, verse 16 through 21, he says, And when you fast, notice he says when you fast, he doesn't say if you fast, Right? It says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, which means actors, okay? For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, which is their impressiveness in the eyes of other people. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this doesn't mean that if anybody finds out that you fast on a regular basis, that you have screwed all this up and that you are a legalist. Again, this is being legalistic about legalism, okay? So the idea here, though, is that, and I'll tell you what, I've been very encouraged by people who do this on a consistent basis. Not to be impressive, but simply because they recognize and... It's clear in their lifestyle that they have denied self-indulgence, and it has created a platform for them to draw closer to God, but they have not imposed that upon anyone other than their own lives. See that? Now look at what comes right after this in verse 18. Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, most of the time, this is applied to financial resources, financial treasures. And yes, it does apply to that, but I want you to see it in the context of fasting. Listen to this. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, this is about your heart. This is about your treasure. This is about caring what your father thinks in heaven. And everything operates out of that. Hear this, risen church. Spiritual disciplines are not things that we do in order to impress others or earn God's favor. But they are really good things that we do to remind us that his grace is sufficient. That's what fasting is, right? You're saying, God, I want you even more than the most basic elements in this world. You are what sustains me. More than bread. 
That's what that is. It's a spiritual discipline. They're good, not legalistic. They can become legalistic if they are designed to make you, or, or, or if, they, if you think that they in themselves save you. But they don't. They point you to the one who does. So spiritual disciplines like fasting, like prayer, like quiet times, like gathering together in worship on Sunday morning or in community groups throughout the week, like financial giving or serving, all of these things aren't done in order to earn God's favor or other people's favor. They are the joyful and loving response of a people who've already been set free and are running hard towards and even with their Savior and King. They're forms of worship. And therefore, you're good. And so we do them from a place of uh, love. And so the disciplines are consistent avenues through which we posture our hearts to behold his grace together and remind one another that that pride and shame spectrum is a lie. That's not legalism. It's just discipleship. And so because of Christ, hear this, because of Christ, I don't have to go to church. Because of Christ, I don't have to give 10% of my income. But you know what? Giving 11% or more doesn't make you a legalist. It makes you a lover of the things that God loves. Giving 1%, 2%, 3%. That's a whole other sermon. Might get into it. I don't have time. Unless you, look, again, unless you start demanding that everybody else do the same and judging them for not being as holy as you are, that's when it all gets twisted and we miss the point entirely. So he also mentions the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind here. So the worship of angels is probably a reference to the idea of invoking angels to come and help or bring protection from evil spirits rather than going directly to God. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't acknowledge the existence or even reality of angels, right? Scripture is clear that they are real and that they are sent by God to help his people. But it seems that in an effort to come across as spiritually impressive, that there's someone in their church who's trying to show somehow how he's just like elite, that some were actually calling on these angels rather than Jesus for help, okay? So maybe it seemed like they were super spiritual by doing this to other people, or they had something everybody else was missing, right? Uh, like, you know, man, he, that guy gets an angel? That's cool. Like, I, want, I want an angel, all I've got is the Holy Spirit. How do I get an angel, right? Like, that's missing the point, right? If the, uh, P.S., if, they, if they're actually angels of the Lord, then they're very intentional in pointing us to God, not themselves. That's what angels do, right? But there are also fallen angels that point you to themselves or yourself, Okay? That's another sermon. So Paul then mentions that a false teacher has been going on in detail also about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So the language here isn't talking about prophetic visions that are given by God for the encouragement of the body. Scripture is clear that those are very good. This is something different. This was something or someone trying to use a spiritual experience as clout to prove that they are more significant than everyone else, even more significant than God's word because of that vision or experience they had. This strikes right at the heart of like every cult, okay? It's essentially what Mormonism and Islam are based on. 
So both Muhammad and Joseph Smith, who are the founders of Islam and Mormonism, um, respectively, claimed this superior knowledge as given by angels rather than the actual word of God and preeminence of Jesus. So both the Quran and the Book of Mormon actually say that they were prophets. They claim to have been prophets in line with the Christian prophets. But Galatians 1, 8 through 10 says, if they were prophets in line, then they would look to God's word, right? Well, God's word says this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, so he's emphasizing it for some reason, probably because this happens a lot. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But this isn't just about cults, right? Like many times people who receive a legitimate vision or word from God, um, but instead of being humbled by it, and weighing it in gospel community and against the authority of God's word, they instead, they let it consume their ego and they become convinced that they are somehow superior to everyone else. Now hear me. God does speak prophetically and he does move in power today. But it doesn't mean that the one that God gifts in this way is more significant than anyone else. And it definitely doesn't mean that they are more authoritative than the scriptures. All right? God has proven that he will speak through the mouth of a donkey if he has to. All right? That's actually an Old Testament reference that he did. If no one else will speak up, he'll speak through the mouth of a donkey. So it's important to test these things against the word of God and to steward it with a lot of humility. So see, again, spiritual elitism creates status-oriented cultures that focus on being accepted by those elite rather than Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the only one who can truly declare your qualification, acceptance, and approval. Look at verse 19. So he talks about them not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body, which is the church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. So he's saying that all that superiority is just self-centered and illegitimate because it's detached from the true source of life, which is Jesus, the head. Now, I love this. Follow this. He makes it clear that when you're holding fast to Jesus, he doesn't puff you up. He empowers you to build others in the church up. That's very different. He doesn't cultivate resentment or pride and shame and status jostling. He, he, he infuses you with a heart to love and forgive and nourish each other and point one another to Jesus. See, all that self-centered legalistic stuff just causes people to isolate and look down on the church, right? Like this is what people do when they get legalistic. They kind of, they actually say, oh man, they start calling the church legalistic or they start saying, oh, that institution, that, that thing is just, I'm way better than the church. I don't need church. I don't need Christians. And it causes them to isolate and then shame the church. That's this thing. That's pride and shame. You see that? But when you're holding fast to Jesus, when you're here and you're holding fast to Jesus in the head, 
and you're rooting in his word and his spirit and you're taking joy in him and you're enjoying God, then the overflow is joyful and self-sacrificial love for what he loves, which is his people and his great commission. This is the point of the church. When you hold fast to Christ and take joy in his spirit, then he's even going to cultivate grace in your heart for those who struggle with that legalistic religious spirit. Instead of letting them bait you on to that pride and shame spectrum, when you hide yourself in Christ, you can forgive them. Well, that's revolutionary. You mean I don't have to just label them legalists and try and bring them down a notch on the pride and shame spectrum? No. You can actually love them and forgive them, right? And point them to the gospel of grace and truth and love. You see how this works? then you might actually find that they do the same for you if you ever get caught up in that religious spirit one day. Don't be fooled into thinking that you are infallible. This is why we need the grace of God in Christ and each other to remind us of this truth and who we are. It's easy to project your own struggle with a religious spirit onto others. Hear this. This is real important. It's easy to project your struggle with the religious spirit onto other people. It's easy to assume that someone is judging or disqualifying you when in reality they're just loving God and pursuing holiness and renewal and grace and just living right here and inviting you to come do the same thing. So be careful not to project that spectrum onto people who are just living in that place of grace and, and, and pursuit of Jesus and inviting you in. This is part of giving the benefit of the doubt and living graciously in unity with one another. And even if the religious spirit is at work in them, offering that kind of grace is the best way for you to love and serve them. So you don't need to condemn others because you feel condemned by others. That's just living on that spectrum. This is how Jesus sets the captives free and liberates us from the lies of the enemy, which leads me into the final lie, the final point here, and the final lie that legalism tells the Christian, which is you are enslaved. Look at verse 20. It says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, on the surface, it, it actually seems a little crazy that anyone would want to submit to these kind of empty regulations, right? Like, why would people construct these wild rules and then impose them on everybody else? Like, what's so, what's so enticing or tempting about legalism? Why would anybody want to do this? So I've got four specific things that legalism tempts us with here, which makes it enticing, especially in these particular areas. And that's pride, power, comfort, and security. As we said, for some it gives people a sense that they're better than others because they have this tangible metric now to compare themselves to others with. Right? So especially when it's something that most people don't care about, like a rule they made up. They're like, that's, that's that whole, like, I'm the only one who actually loves God lie. Right? Nobody else is willing to do these things, therefore I must be better. But it's not just about pride. Legalism also gives you a way to control the world around you. For every circumstance, legalists have a rule. 
Think about this. There's no need for discernment or sensitivity to the Spirit's leading or relationship with Him if I have a rule constraining every single aspect of my life. On the one hand, it provides protection. But on the other, it can also be suffocating and enslaving because it's not God's boundary line. It's yours. Which gives us a sense of shame-driven power over others when we impose those man-made boundaries on them. And the temptation to impose is high because there is comfort in conformity, right? Like it's comforting and affirming when others live like we do. And you need that reassurance, especially when it's about things that aren't grounded in God's word. But maybe the biggest temptation of all, though, is the security that legalism brings. Because when you submit to these extra constraining regulations, it brings a false sense of security. So the point here is that God has provided a wonderful dwelling place and given us his presence. His God-given commandments are for our good. And they are sufficient for human flourishing and they don't need our additions. Now the Spirit may lead you, hear this, the Spirit may lead you to put a few extra boundaries in place for your own good in certain situations. For some, it may be wise to completely abstain from alcohol or give alcohol up entirely, whereas for others, the boundary line is simply the biblical mandate to not get drunk, right? But the point is use wisdom there and don't legalistically impose your calling to abstain completely from alcohol onto everybody else. And then judge them for not doing what you feel you need to do in your circumstance. That is legalism. You see it? So the point is, again, use wisdom. Paul asks them, why do you submit to regulations? Again, the word submit comes from the word submission, which means to come underneath someone else's mission. Like a covering over you that both shields you and gives you purpose. Why are you submitting to the purpose of a rule? Why, your, your, our mission is not rules and regulations. Our mission is the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. He, we submit to Christ in Christ alone. His mission is our great commission. He is our covering, and it's so much greater than our own pride or comfort and security, right? This is why our submission is ultimately to Jesus Christ alone. He is our covering. He is our mission. He is our purpose. And so we cast off any sin that clings and lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and we run with the endurance, the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, I'm wrapping this up here. Some of you may feel like your joy has been stolen because everything you do is in an effort to please or live up to the demands of someone other than Jesus. Like you may find yourself more concerned about what they think of you than you are about what God thinks of you. And whatever you idolize, you need to understand you will eventually demonize and that will create a divisive root within the church or your family or whatever it is. So hear me. You need to understand something. That doesn't mean that the person you are uh, trying to live up to is legalistic. That's not what that means. It likely means that it's your heart, not theirs. They could just be pointing you to the good, glorious God and his wonderful means of posturing yourselves before his grace. 
Be careful not to project legalism onto people who are simply pointing you to the heart of God and even very good spiritual disciplines that are designed to help you see his grace and his goodness. That's not legalism. That's just discipleship. Amen? So don't run from that. Embrace it with a joyful and a thankful heart. It gets twisted when we make it about living up to human expectations and the fear of man, which more often than not has to do with our own hearts rather than the hearts of others. So this morning, I want to point you to Jesus, and I want, you to in, I want to invite you to run to him. I want to invite you to obey him, to love him, and to behold him and be held by him. And hear what he has to say about you through his word and his spirit. Because our greatest weapon against legalism is joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's pray.